Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 30 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the critical issues of our day. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Candy Crowley is the chief political correspondent for CNN and the anchor of its Sunday news program, State of the Union. She's based in the network's Washington, D.C. Bureau, where she covers presidential, congressional, and gubernatorial races and major legislative developments on Capitol Hill. As a political correspondent, she has traveled to all 50 states, and since 1976, she has reported on all but one of the national political conventions. Most recently, she was part of the Emmy and Peabody Award-winning team that covered the 2006 midterm elections and the 2008 presidential election. Ms. Crowley was recently described in the Washington Post as a veteran political reporter respected in official Washington who works hard and knows her stuff. A fellow journalist character characterized her as the Cliff's, Cliff's Notes for all the other reporters. She reads everything, and on the press bus, everyone goes to her to ask what this bill or that issue is all about. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum a reporter of uncommon professionalism, Candy Crowley. Thank you all very much. Thank you. I am excited, if a little sleep deprived, um, to be here in what I have been assured in front of the most informed voters in the country, uh, inside what I was assured of the most beautiful room in the country, and preceded by what I know were some very distinguished guests for you all. So I hope to, to live up to the standard that you've set uh, in setting arena audience and speakers. I've learned a lot from the presidential candidates and senatorial candidates and House candidates that I've covered uh, over decades. And one of the things that I learned from Bob Dole in 1996 was what he called the three Bs of speech making, which were, he said, be honest, be brief, and be seated. So <laughs> I'm going to keep that promise. I will jump back up, though, for your questions. You'll be happy to know. But I always thought, and, and he was. Um, so it, it is. Um, Mostly the night before I give a speech, I sit around and think, well, do they want to know about cap and trade? And I can tell them what's going on with that, or I could do this, or I could do that. So I'm trying to figure out what to talk about. Last night, I was trying to figure out what not to talk about. <laughs> um, my cup runneth over. These are, these are great times for political journalists, if not always for Democrats, uh, at least this time around. Uh, what happened, I guess, is the big question. Uh, something big is the answer. Um, something permanent, we have no idea. If there's one thing we know, there's very little that is permanent uh, in politics other than the impermanence of it. Um, we had the biggest turnover since Truman in, on Capitol Hill. We also had 19 state legislatures move from Democratic to Republican. You all know about that here. Uh, we saw 60-plus House seats switch over to Republicans, uh, at least six, uh, probably only six, and that we're saying only, it tells you a little bit what the season was like, six Republican switchovers in the Senate, uh, governors, uh, and just massive demographic changes in the polls. But the, here's the one that counts, 18 points. That is the Republican advantage among independents, and that is the ball game right there. Uh, that's what happened, and that's how they won back Capitol Hill. Um, it is obviously great news for Republicans. It's also in that very famous, be careful what you wish for, because the ball game changes now. Uh, people didn't vote for Republicans so much that they just couldn't wait to see the Republicans. It, it was that they were mad at the Democrats. Uh, this was an anti-democratic election, not so much a pro-Republican election, and the Republicans know that. They're saying that out loud. So it was, it was pretty clear from all the exit polls, which I'm sure you all have heard talk about that ad nauseum, but it, it is very true that this was a message to the Democrats sent through the Republicans, a lot less to do with Republicans. But look, fundamentally, they lost the middle. Democrats lost the middle with President Obama in charge. What happened? The economy didn't turn around. 
that people just don't feel it. You can talk all you want about changes in the GNP and about how the private sector gained this many jobs, but then the public sector lost that many. When people look and they see 9.5, 9.6, and by the way, the jobless rate is up again today. When they see that, it, all of the other statistics don't matter. When they see that, when they see the mortgage foreclosure rates uh, going sky high, it makes people uneasy. Uh, if they don't know someone who's unemployed, uh, they fear they're going to lose their jobs. It is, everybody is touched in it in some way. It was not helped by the fact that the president had said if you pass this almost $800 billion stimulus plan, unemployment will stay around 8%, won't top 8%. Well, if you're at 9.6 at the next election, people tend to hold you accountable. Um, now, what did the president do wrong? If you're a progressive, you think he underperformed. You think he should have been tougher. You think he should have gone after more in health care. You think he should have stared down the Republicans a lot sooner. You don't think he ever should have worried about what his moderates or what Republicans were going to say. If you are the, a moderate, you're thinking he overreached. You're thinking he did too much. And if you're kind of one of those in the middle, you think he just oversold everything. Um, that you know he said 8%, they should have backed off. And there are others who think he undersold, that he wasn't out there pitching what changes had really happened, that instead of job losses, we are seeing job gains, not enough, not near enough, but yet they were there. It is hard, I think, at this point to argue that a president whom we see nearly every day um, was not out there trying to sell what he had done. I just think the American people weren't buying it at this particular point. So we sort of get to the question, what does this change now? What can we expect to see in Washington? State legislatures have far-reaching effects, as you all know, particularly because it's the census has been taken. It's time to redistrict. So that's huge at the state level. But let me stick with the federal level, because again, our cup runneth over here. And I want to save time for your questions. So let me just talk about Congress and how this mix changes or doesn't change the parties. For the Republicans, um, I think Marco Rubio, the new senator-elect from Florida, a Tea Party-backed candidate, a conservative, uh, said it best when in his acceptance speech he said, this is not because the American people have embraced us. Um, this is a second chance. And I think it is a second chance for Republicans. We now know they have a very short time frame, the same one probably that President Obama had. Um, and they are balancing competing pressures because you will have Tea Party-backed candidates or conservative candidates, however you want to view them, that have been swept into power who are going to want to stick with. We want to overturn health care. We want to cut the budget. We want to give everybody tax cuts because that's what they campaigned on. But what we also know is those centrists that swing back and forth, those indies that went 18 points for Republicans, want Washington to do something. They want Washington to get along. They want the Republicans and the Democrats in the same room doing something. Well, that's a competing pressure. How do you go, how do you still be the party of no and embrace the party of yes, let's talk, let's all come up with a solution, let's meet in the middle. Uh, first of all, they're gonna have to figure out where the middle is. Um, and that goes for the Democrats and the Republicans. But it is, it is going to be a supreme balancing act. And I think if you've listened to the words of uh, probably speaker-to-be Boehner and uh, Mitch uh, O'Connell over in the, uh, on the uh, Senate side, McConnell, on the Senate side, uh, you will know that they're right now trying to strike the balance. It's like we're going to support the president when he's with the American people and we're not going to support him when he's not. That's a pretty... That's kind of large. That's, so it's, um, you know, sort of trying to set the, uh, the needle toward where you're headed is going to be difficult for them. It, listen, I think that the Democrats have the same problem in many ways. Half of the blue dogs, that is Democrat, conservative Democrats in swing areas, half of them got abruptly retired by the voters on Tuesday night. So what's happened is that the House Democratic caucus has gotten more liberal, and the Senate Democratic caucus, with the influx of more Republicans, has gotten less powerful. So you are going to have uh, it, all that the House Democrats can do, because the rules are so much uh, stricter in the House, is they can 
try to stop things, they can make a lot of noise, they can be like the Republicans have been for the last two years, but they can't set the agenda. So uh, somewhere uh, it, it, on the House side, they can make points, but they can't, uh, they can't win games. The games are won over on the Senate side. That's where the legislation ultimately has to go through. And you have people now like uh, Senator like Manchin, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, a Democrat who campaigned really against pretty much everything, cap and trade, uh, a, a lot of the things that the Obama administration has done. So the, the Senate is where the search for the center uh, is the most important. There is not a center, frankly, in the House. Um, so they're going to have to find it uh, over on the Senate side. For the White House, its dilemma is you do have this base saying it's because you weren't progressive enough. It's because you caved. And on the other hand, you can't swing, you, you can't win elections without the Indies who want you to be nice. And I think you saw the president's uh, first answer to how he was going to handle all of this uh, in his signal yesterday that he'll deal on the extension of the Bush tax cuts. Uh, to me, this was really smart because, first of all, I think practically speaking, he's going to have to, even though he's dealing with the old Congress. It won't be the new Congress until January. But uh, by and large, this is a recognition of reality. He is probably going to have to give on those tax cuts, not because the Republicans were going to oppose him, but because there were enough Democrats who were thinking we really should extend these to a certain extent for wealthier Americans as well. So the president has both embraced the notion that the voters want a Washington that works as well as reality and said, okay, and he's the first out of the box with, I can compromise on this. Now, where he's going to compromise in the details, and we all know where the devil is, and look where we're standing, so we get that it's in the details, um, but the president was the first out of the box with sort of acknowledging the changing dynamic, at least for this moment, uh, on what, what's happening of what will happen on Capitol Hill and the new sort of dynamic. So what are they going to do? If they could do something, are we going to have gridlock or are they going to move on anything? They have to move on something that gets the economy moving. This is like the most obvious thing in the world, and I feel silly stating it, but the entire uh, election was based on the economy, and the economy to most people is based on jobs and a good-paying job and keeping uh, a middle-class existence uh, lively and vibrant in the United States. They've got to figure out a way to work together because guess what? If, if an election can, if we can change from what, where we were in 2008 to where we are now in 2010, it can flip right back again. Um, the time frame is very short. Um, the president said again when he came out yesterday his interpretation of the elections. They want us to focus on jobs and they want us to focus on changing our tune in Washington, not the administration's tune, the whole tune in Washington. And he did both in sort of that one sentence, willing to, to talk about tax cuts. Um, so the, it's a, I think it's a quick hit of goodwill for the White House. All these questions, does the president get it? You know, does he know what the voters are saying to him? Well, we don't really know what the voters are saying at this point. We're still sort of going through the massive exit polls. But I think the two things that he's addressing are clear. Um, where can they, where else, like when the new Congress comes in, what might you see? What might this Congress be able to find? Well, broadly, you can think, well, education. Everybody thinks education needs to be improved. Uh, what about energy? Yes, they can find some way to do a really pared down energy reform, which will include alternative uh, energy resources. It won't include cap and trade or a carbon tax because it just won't float through. Uh, a newly empowered minority Republicans in the Senate, nor will it get through on the House side. Deficit reduction, I think they have to. I think that's a clear uh, message also from this uh, campaign that people are worried they got no bang for their buck, um, that no, sure jobs were created, but for 800 billion, um, there really ought to have probably have been more. Um, earmark reform. Even though the Senate doesn't like it and it might not go anywhere, the president sort of signaled he likes that. Presidents tend to like those things. Um, and the so-called tweaks on health care. Um, it, it is hard to see something major like health care reform that passed in the first two years passing in this next two years. They just, the, the, 
philosophical differences of these competing parties are too large, but there are places that they can move things. And I think those are the places that you can, that we can see them moving. But there has to be, I think the Republicans have to be really careful about this whole health care repeal thing. There, there is no clear mandate for anybody to repeal health care that we can find. The tweaks, even the White House has said, well, we can see tweaking it. Um, but they had many new people coming in, the Republicans, who did talk about, we're going to repeal health care reform, we're going to throw it out, we're going to defund it. You hear the leaders all kind of echoing that cry. The problem is, if they spend two years trying to repeal health care reform, it's not going to happen. It won't happen. The president would veto it. They don't have a veto. They don't have enough power to override a veto. They don't have enough Republicans in the Senate. So if the House sort of spends all its time trying to repeal health care and doesn't get around to actually doing something that, that they can say, and we did this and we did that, it's, uh, it's, it's two years will seem like a very short time when it rolls around if that's what they spend their time on. On the other hand, they have to make the point. There will, here's what won't happen, immigration. I don't think you're going to see immigration reform. On the Democratic side, they're going to want to keep this alive. Because if you look at, um, first of all, because as we all know, Latino voters are the fastest growing voting bloc uh, out there these days. They, there's every evidence that they saved Bennett in Colorado and Reed in um, Nevada that the Latino vote, heavy Latino vote, heavy pro-democratic Latino vote, because they were turned off by what they viewed as anti-immigrant uh, language and ads by the Republicans. It looks like the Latino vote saved both those candidates. So the power of the Latino vote is growing and will grow even further. So the Democrats are going to want people on record who are opposed to immigration reform. So you're going to see them bring it up again, even as Republicans bring up health care, because they each have to play to the bases that brought them to the party. So, uh, literally. Um, so they're going to have to, they're both going to have to deal with those, but I, I can't see any, anything major happening on those, two, on those two fronts. Let me quickly sort of address politics post-2010, and that's politics 2012. Welcome. Um, we're there. <laughs> um, and, and let's also just say that the predictive value of these elections for 2012 is probably zero. Because um, two years ago, had I been here, I would have told you that it was going to take a decade for the Republican Party to reestablish itself, as did most people, and here we are. So um, it, it is, we have now learned that two years really is a lifetime in politics. Um, and it didn't take a decade for the uh, Republicans to regroup, or probably put more accurately, for the Democrats to kind of blow it. So um, it, it can, it, the reverse can happen. Um, there was an interesting poll that CNN had out today that I will share with you, um, asking among likely Republican voters who they would support in 2012. 21% said Mike Huckabee, 20% um, said Mitt Romney, and 14% said Sarah Palin, and on down. I found that really interesting, and, and I heard somebody was talking on it this morning, um, and said, well, you know, this is all about name recognition. And I looked and I said, you know, but of the three of them, Huckabee, Romney, Palin, the guy in first, Huckabee probably has the least name recognition, although he's a favorite among conservatives in, in the Republican Party. So, but I think it speaks to, and again, long time between now and then, uh, but it speaks to real reticence, I think, um, on the part of the Republican Party uh, to see Sarah Palin as presidential material. Having said that, nobody it, she has 100% name recognition. Uh, she can raise money uh, like w without an infrastructure. She she basically has no, you know, traveling apparatus. No, she has a pack, but she doesn't have this big kind of machine behind her. She can raise crazy money. She's basically is the de facto head of the Tea Party, and she's as exciting as she is polarizing. So one never underestimates Sarah Palin. She had, Sarah Palin, she had some great successes uh, in this election, and she had some failures. So it's a mixed record for her, but she is a player. The question is whether she wants to be the kingmaker or the king. Um, I have always thought, and I, and I believe firmly, that when you predict, you should just 
the, the best thing to do is to stay consistently wrong rather than change your mind all the time. So in, in, keeping, in keeping with that, I still am one of those who believes that despite her high visibility and all these things and the book and the pack and, the, and she's now this morning has a new video out on her web that looks very sort of presidential in its presentation, I still think she likes a kingmaker role better. Um, and I, I still don't believe um, she's going to run. And so everyone says, why is she doing all this? Well, because, you know, that's how everybody does it. If you've written a book, if you want speaking engagements, you keep yourself out there. And the minute you say, no, I'm not running, you, you know, down go your speaking fees and the people buying your books and that sort of thing. So I think she is a power player in the Republican Party, but I've sort of consistently said, so again, I may be consistently wrong, but she does not seem to me to be somebody who's preparing to make a major run for the presidency. For President Obama, the question has been for some time looking at what we thought was going to happen. Um, how is he going to deal with the next two years? There are two templates in the Democratic Party for getting your clock cleaned in midterms. And the first one was Harry Truman, who went out and gave him hell. And he, he fought against his Congress through the whole thing, and it worked. He won. Despite all the odds, he won. The other one is Bill Clinton, who brought triangulate into the English language and learned you know, how to work with past major welfare reform with Republicans, um, you know, declared the era of uh, big government dead, although I think he actually did that before that. Um, and it worked for him, and he was reelected. Uh, so which, where, where does President Obama fit into this template? Which template is he? My guess is both. I think you have to find, he can use the House to push up against. Uh, that they, if there is a, and there's already, well, would you shut down the government if there was too much spending? So we all know that that didn't work that well. The last time the Republicans shut down the government, the, their clocks got serviced. So. <laughs> You can't, there, there, are, there are places and times at which the president's going to have to push against the Republicans to make that defining line, and other times where he has to keep in mind that he needs to change the tone in Washington and um, is, needs to reach out. So my guess is he'll be a, a hybrid of uh, Truman and Clinton, uh, trying to kind of walk that line that makes him still different, that makes him still appealing to progressives, uh, as well as um, it, it reach out to Republicans, appear to be reaching out to Republicans, and put them, make them seem as though they're the ones that are not cooperating. So it'll be a big game on who isn't changing their tone in Washington. Um, you all have had a um, couple of great races here. I know that um, we love Minnesota, and we love Florida, and we love Ohio, and um, so, uh, Jim Overstar, amazing to me, um, except for the Republican uh, Congressional Committee had Operation Sleeping Dog, and it went after people like Congressman Overstar uh, up here. It went after people like John Spratt, who was the head of the Budget Committee, the guys that have been along, around forever, never really had big, serious challenges. And they went after them. And uh, they, as I say, about half of them, half of the blue dogs, and they were in red-leaning places, obviously. So Oberstar doesn't fit into that that particular template. But they went after them, and they won. This was this wasn't a okay. Well, they got they knocked off the easy ones, the freshman Democrats who are in McCain territory. They didn't just do that. They knocked off Oberstar for heaven's sakes, Jim Oberstar, who's in one of the most Democratic districts in the country. Um, that was hard to do. That was, uh, it, you know, a lot of people did not see that coming. So it was a clean, clean win uh, for Republicans. And uh, if they if they can use it, uh, their plan obviously um, is to use it right back into the White House and right back into the Senate. And they've got clearly um, two years to do it. And I would just wrap up by saying that for those of you who are um, Democrats who are still in mourning today. Um, that, that the good news for Republicans is that they just had a great election. And the good news for Democrats is um, this is a public that no longer has a lot of tolerance. 
Um, the leash is not long on the politicians. Uh, we have had th literally three wave elections in a row. People are not forgiving if they think their political leaders are playing politics, are not trying to work together, have uh, strayed from what they promised to be. Um, so, you know, there's, there's always 2012 Democrats. Um, and it is, uh, you know, it may, I know it doesn't make your day, but for political reporters, this has been the most <laughs> fascinating election I think I've seen um, in some time. And, um, and it makes me not be able to wait till 2012. So um, I look forward to your questions on 2010 or 2012, and I thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Candy Crowley. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is CNN's Senior Political Correspondent, Candy Crowley. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to invite the radio audience to join us for our next forum in two weeks on Thursday, November 18th at noon, when scholar and historian David Eisenhower explores the public and personal legacy of his grandfather, five-star general and 34th president of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower. And now, Ms. Crowley, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. You've been observing up close and from the inside political elections now for three plus decades. Was there anything unique about this election cycle? Anything that stands out as uh, a first time uh, event or activity or process? I think uh, even knowing that voters change as they do, I, I, I knew something big was coming when CNN had a poll, it was probably six weeks ago, maybe not quite even that long ago, um, that showed that when you asked who was the better president, George W. Bush or President Obama, they were just about tied. And I thought, wow, um, you know, for, again, for a group that was talking two years ago about how Republicans couldn't recover for another 10 years, the sort of, you know, McPolitics um, nature of the two years, like, boy, you know, do it or get out, uh, nature of this election really did strike me as um, kind of the quickest turnaround I had seen, because I did think that when President, I covered President Obama when he was candidate Obama, and I did think that he would have a longer honeymoon, because so many people felt more deeply about him when I traveled the country with him than so many other candidates that I have covered. It was this uh, sort of, he was in so many ways, people just took every hope they had and sort of put it right on him. And if you look at it, you know, we knew at the time, like no one can live up to this because people sort of see what they wanna see and believe what will happen, what they believe will happen. It's just tougher to govern than it is to campaign. And um, even knowing that at the time, I didn't foresee that this, this turnaround, and everyone will say it wasn't a, it, this wasn't a, uh, a referendum on President Obama, but you know, elections almost always are referendums on the people in power. So I was just, I was really surprised by the uh, swiftness with which uh, voters went to the polls and said, eh, apply the brakes. Question that follows up on that comment you just made. In this age of faster and faster communications, have we as a people lost our patience for change, change that doesn't occur overnight? It doesn't occur overnight, but when you don't have a job and you haven't had one for six months and you're about to lose your house and you're afraid you can't send your child to college and you're watching your 401k uh, go, you know, cut in half and your union's telling you that you might lose your pension, patience is just not the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, and it is easy to have patience um, when you're not as uncomfortable as uh, a lot of our fellow Americans have been. Several questions about the media have come forward. Why don't news organizations such as yours spend more time illuminating issues and educating viewers and less time focusing on controversy? <laughs> um, 
I'd say, you know, a couple of things. I'm a, you know, I think I'm a substance kind of gal, but I love the, I love the to and fro of the political arena, which often is about conflict and the crazy things that happen. Um, I mean, I just, even though I thought the I Am Not a Witch ad got overplayed as a news story, I, every time I got caught watching it, I just, you know, it was fascinating to me. Um, so I, li listen, there is more information out there now for anybody who is looking for it than there ever has been in my lifetime and I bet in all of your lifetimes. Um, it is out there. No, I have said this, and I hope no one from CNN is watching, but uh, uh, or listening. I, I've said this before, and I truly mean it. You can't get all your news from one place. You have to spread out. I don't like niche news at all. I don't like okay, this is news for the conservatives. This is news for the you know. I think news ought to be news, but. I also think that there is news analysis out there and you ought to go all over looking for it. I think you ought to read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. I think you ought to pick up the, the quick hits from USA Today. I think you ought to watch CNN. I, you know, so I don't, I don't buy that every entity can be all things to you. But I think there are enough entities out there to get all of your information needs fulfilled. Over the years as a journalist, have you seen the role of the media change in reporting on elections and perhaps influencing them? Well, sure, I mean, everything's changed in the media. Um, I, I just even, the, and I'm, I'm, I'm also, I'm a First Amendment gal, so I think as much information as you can have, the better off you are. But I tell you, when those little mini cams came on, when everyone got a phone that could become a camera and they all came out on the campaign trail, it completely changed the mix of what it's like on the campaign trail day in and day out. Because where you might every once in a while catch a candidate being themselves or being um, natural, you now, they now know that 24-7 unless they are locked inside their own bedrooms and even then, good heavens, I don't want to, you know, but I think even then, um, you know, you can't get away from the camera and the camera changes the mix. The camera changes people. It's, and I think it's called in, in physics the uncertainty principle that an experiment watched is an experiment changed. Well, I think sometimes this part of democracy, even though I'm like openness, freedom, everyone should have a camera, it does change things. And so I think it changes the nature of our job because it's harder to figure out who these people are. I also think going to the other part of the question that um, the line between a reporter, like here I am, this just happened, the building fell down, three people were in custody, to the analyst, well, the building fell down because the structure was wrong, it had nothing to do with these three men, to the commentator, these three men are guilty and ought to be thrown in jail. Those lines are so blurred now that I think people turn on and can't distinguish who's telling the news and who's giving you their opinion. Because we're all kind of on the same shows and, and you think, well, is that person, you know, is that their opinion or is that a fact? And so I think it is, we've made it in some ways more difficult, but in other ways, I think, you know, that, that people who watch a lot of people who are interested uh, enough uh, to um, watch shows and read a lot of papers do know that difference, but I think that there almost needs to be a kind of a viewer um, education course <laughs> that you could take or a reader education course saying, okay, here's the deal. I'm still a purist, but I believe that analysis is necessary because I think analysis is why. And I don't think you can have the news if you don't know why. Why is President Obama today saying, okay, I think I can deal on these Bush uh, tax cuts? Why is he saying that today? Well, you know and I know that he's saying that today um, because the mix has changed, because he's getting this message and because he knows he needs to seem to be to reach out, to be compromising, to try to find common ground. So I think that's a legitimate part of reporting. The legitimate, the non-legitimate part of reporting is, and I think that's a good thing for him to do. Maybe I think that's a smart thing for him to do because I think that, but good or bad has now become part of straight news reporting. And see, that should be your guy's job, 
is, you, you know, here it is, you figure out whether it's good or bad. And that's where I think the lines have been blurred um, to the detriment of both news and news watchers. This question may ask you to blur that line a little further. Today, Senator Mitch McConnell repeated again that his number one objective is to ensure that President Obama is a one-term president. What do you think about this Republican strategy? Is it a winner? <laughs> well, well like, can I come back in two years? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, listen, the, he, here is how, and I, I spoke to the senator after he made his first remark in a, in a uh, um, magazine and said, well, my, you know, my main aim or my uh, top priority is, you know, to make sure he's a one-term president. And I said, why would you? Why would you say that? I mean, shouldn't it be like getting jobs for people or this or that? And he said, look, I also said that I wanted to cooperate where we could, but why is it a surprise to anybody that we don't want him to be president again? And I said, well, you know, time and a place for everything. I remember some of the stuff my mother told me. This just seemed kind of like the wrong time and the wrong place. <laughs> um, but he, you know, but his side of that was, um, but this is, we can't do what we want to do as long as there is a Democrat in the White House. So, and, and the one thing I know about Senator McConnell is he's, you know, if he meant it when he said it and he's not gonna back off it because people go, oh, how could you possibly say that? Because, and in a way, it's a little refreshing because we all kind of know he wants President Obama to be a one-term president. So the fact that he says it is sort of, you know, I mean, in one way you can look at it and go, well, of course he wants him to be a one-term president. Um, and if he thinks that's good politics, well, that's, that's his choice, and we'll see in two years. This is from one of the students in the room. What happened to the American public holding the Republicans accountable for the worst economic recession since the Great Depression? Why has the blame suddenly shifted to President Obama and the Democrats? The blame hasn't shifted for whoever asked that question. The exit polls, it shows people still blame the Republicans and President Bush, but that's not the question. The question is, do we like how President Obama is moving forward on this? That's what voters took to the polls. They're, if you say to them who's to blame, they say President Bush or the Republicans. But if you say, you know, but, but, but their, their vote was moving forward. Um, I don't think you'll find, I don't think, I don't think I've seen a poll that hasn't said that, that uh, voters, likely voters, and in fact, the public at large, um, most of the polls say, I think all the polls say, that the American public still blames President Bush. But that was not the key question on the minds of voters, clearly, um, when they went to the polls. They didn't say, who do I blame, and then push, push the Republican key, because they still re blame Republicans. Another question from a student in the room. What policies will most tangibly improve the economy, and who will be able to take credit for that in 2012? Well, the first question is, that's why I'm not a politician or an econo <laughs> economist or anything else. I have the biggest idea. I mean, I, one of the great things about being a reporter for so long is I could argue either side now with great credibility because I, it, you know, I get it on both sides. I just don't. I just don't know. I, I've, seen, I've seen the tax cutting side, I've seen the stimulus side, and I don't think anybody has the answer quite yet. I've come to believe that in very large part, the economy is on its own rhythms and its own cycles, and I've talked to a lot of economists about this as I try to understand what might might not work. And in large part, it, there are cycles to the economy, and we're, you know, what you try to do is ride the wave. Um, as far as the second part of the question, which was, how's it gonna play politically? Sorry. Who will take credit for any economic oh, improvement? If it gets better, they both sides will take credit. <laughs> I mean. Follow-up question on the economic uh, reality here. Uh, do the Republicans really have a plan other than striking down Democratic uh, goals and objectives? And if so, where do you see some possibilities for compromise between the two parties on the economy? Well, I do think on the economy uh, that you will see more than the, the tax cut, the extension of the Bush tax cuts, there'll be some sort of compromise. They are not gonna let those tax cuts expire on the middle class. In order to do that, they're gonna have to either, right now, or the Obama administration, the Democrats have argued that anyone making $250,000 and above should have those tax cuts expire. They will either raise that ceiling, half a million a year, maybe a million a year, 
or they will say, okay, let's temporarily extend them for, uh, let's permanently extend them for the middle class and temporarily extend them for wealthier people until we get out of this sluggish economy. So that's one area, sort of immediate area. I suspect uh, that you will see a lot of the economic um, agreement around the idea of deficit cutting. The problem is how you cut the deficit. Um, I, I think there will be some agreements, maybe a spending freeze, Republicans are floating that, but that always gets tricky because some things get frozen and some things don't. Um, but I think that, and I think that you may step back, you may see the president go, have the, say to the Republicans, fine, you know, let me see your budget, because he's got to present one at the beginning of next year. Um, and they're going to have to come up with something. I suspect that it will be tax cuts. It will involve an element of tax cuts. And he might go with that. In, in some ways, I can see that happening. Um, so, I mean, there is that, and there's also time. I mean, I think that you could argue that time is on the president's side if you're thinking that, it, let's just say from pure political stance, um, next year may still be rough, um, but he basically has a year and a half, maybe, for the economy to show real signs of coming around. Uh, and for people to feel it, <laughs> that's the key there. It's not that you can't point to figures going, you see, private jobs up, private jobs up, everything's up, it was all down in the bush. You can show people that, but they don't feel it. And until they feel it, they're still gonna be blaming um, the party in charge of the White House. So, but the president has, you know, 18, 19 months for the economy to turn around. Now, it may not next year, but again, economists I've talked to, and they're kind of the on the one hand, on the other hand group, um, but most of them have said that they could see that it would be beginning to turn around uh, late next year in a way that felt genuine to most people. And that's what he's, you, know, you can't, it's just really hard to fight the tide um, of an American public that is distressed about the economy. And he's got a little while for that to turn around, even absent, you know, doing some, you know, making some move, uh, legislative move that he thinks might help the economy. There's also time, which is maybe on his side. In your analysis, to what extent did the Supreme Court ruling earlier this year on political contributions affect this election? I'm also like not a lawyer, but here's, here's what I, we did a lot on that Supreme Court ruling and what this meant to these outside groups that do not have to reveal the names of their donors. And they're like, you know, there are C's and D's in the tax code. And I, so there is, there is a set of, a set of people who can put ads on the air, and I, you saw them here, and they saw them in almost every place where there was a, a real hot race. These outside groups, uh, largely the Republicans, but some Democrats, but the, Demo the Republicans had all the money, just pouring ads onto the air uh, against um, ca Democratic candidates, but they didn't have to tell you who their donors were. The Supreme Court decision, as I understand it from the multiple lawyers that I talked to before a show we did on it, um, did not change the fact that there were anonymous donors. That part of the law had already existed. What the Supreme Court decision did was kind of make it uh, change the timeline, like you could, you could advertise closer up to the election, um, and it changed other things kind of around that law that kind of signaled to the business community and to donors that it was okay to do it. So it did open the floodgates in that sense, but it didn't change the law so that, okay, now you can have anonymous donors. That was already okay prior to the Supreme Court decision. So it did, you did see it, and, and the fact of the matter is, you're gonna see more of it, because I can guarantee you that the Democrats are now, like, the Democrats couldn't get their folks to contribute. They couldn't, you know, there, there were several groups that tried. They couldn't raise the kind of money that Republicans were raising. Again, the passion was on the Republican side. Uh, there were some big Democratic donors that sat it out this year. Um, and But you will see the Democrats come back, because if you can't change that law, you gotta play with the rules that are out there. And as much as the, the White House tried to make an issue of this in the final days of the campaign. I sure you heard the president out there going, they're you know, big money, anonymous donors are giving money and they're you know, trying to change this election. But I can guarantee you the Democratic side will play very hard in the next couple of years uh, to get their side geared up in the way the Republican groups did. Very interesting article, by the way, in Politico, not to plug them, but they had a great article 
uh, yesterday about how these Republican groups coordinated their ad buys. Um, and it was, it was a fascinating look at, at how those third party groups worked this election year. How important is the Tea Party movement in American politics now? Will it have any effect on the 2012 elections from your perspective? It was huge because, again, that's where the passion was. I mean, it was not as successful. Um, somebody said, you know, they've proved that they have the, that's a great line now, I can't remember, but it was, the gist of it was, look, they proved that they have the ability to create a lot of passion. Now they've just got to pick better candidates. Um, and, and I think when you look at Delaware, when you look at Nevada, when you look at Colorado, there were candidates that might have had a better shot at what looked like really vulnerable Democrats. Instead, the Democrats won. However, there were also Tea Party candidates who were smashing successes. I can assure you, one of my favorite races this year was Florida, not because after a while we didn't know who was going to win that race. But here you had the governor of Florida, a Republican, Charlie Crist. Um, in the early days of President Obama's administration, Charlie Crist was going to be the new face of the Republican Party. He was going to grow the tent. He was, he was a moderate. Uh, he, he welcomed the stimulus. He was on the stage with the president. And this was the kind of guy that was going to help the Republican Party over the next decade you know, expand its reach. Okay, then along comes Marco Rubio, a conservative uh, Republican who does have the backing of the Tea Party. Um, and the next thing you know, Charlie Crist has just gone down in flames and Marco Rubio is the new face of the Republican Party. So it, it was, it, it, it spoke to not just the movements don't, first of all, let's just be straight, this, the Tea Party isn't a party. It's a lot of different, it's a movement, um, but there's, there's not, you know, it's a little party here and a party here and a party there. It's basically the, the conservative wing of the Republican Party trying to move the party itself. Um, so I think they've had a tremendous effect on the Republican Party, obviously, if you listen to some of these more um, traditional Republicans, as the Tea Party likes to call them, they've moved right. But the Democrats have also moved right. Those that haven't gone, or those, that, those that aren't, uh, aren't advising the president to move more left uh, have themselves moved a little more centrist. So I think that they have had, the Tea Party across the spectrum has had an effect um, on the electorate, because if you take away the name Tea Party um, and you say, well, people are worried about the size of the deficit and they're worried that the government's overreaching, too much, too much regulation, and uh, they think that you're overtaxed, a lot of people, a lot of independents, by the way, including the 18 points that swung to the uh, Republican side, think that's true. They do think the government spends too much money. They do think the government overtaxes. They do think the government overreaches. So if you take, if you take just their physical, um, sort of their, their three-legged stool of what they're complaining about, it had a lot of resonance of those, resonance of those who don't call themselves Tea Party people. So it's a, it was a major movement. I think it remains a major movement, but it's not an infallible movement. They had some, they had some people that went down in flames. So um, it's, it's a movement, but it is, um, and it's passed its first test. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see. What, Ross Perot had a movement too, so we'll see. Follow-on question to that. Do you see any possibility for a third party movement emerging in the coming years in America? It seems like every cycle I've ever covered, somebody, people go, oh, is there going to be a third party? Please tell me there's going to be a third party. And there's always this kind of desire for it, but the system isn't really set up for third parties. It just favors the Republican and Democratic parties, just the way it is and the funding and, and all of that. And I think and, and third parties have to have somebody to follow. You can't, you can't, third parties to me can't come up from the grassroots unless they've got a star. And unless that star has kind of widespread appeal, you have to have a movement leader. And, and while Ross Perot certainly did have a lot of people that followed him, admired him, he wasn't quite at that sort of rock star follow me thing that could get you know, enough people um, really moving in his favor. So I think you need a him or a her to lead a third party that could actually solidify itself as part of the American political landscape. Otherwise, it's just, it's just too difficult to go, hey, let's all go start a third party. Since you've been covering elections, the role of women has changed considerably. Any comments on the role of women in politics today, especially in the Republican Party? Well, it was the, in, in some ways, um, 
at least leading up to this, there was lots of talk about the year of the Republican women. But if Meg Whitman in California, Carly Fiorona in California, Christine O'Donnell, um, Sharon Angle, um, all lost. Um, those were the conservative, the sort of grizzly mamas, um, as um, Sarah Palin described them, which is actual, it's like soccer moms, but it's, like, you know, it's got this kind of protective you know, feel to it. Um, they all lost. Now, you did have Nikki Haley win the governorship um, in South Carolina. Um, I would say more, more noticeable this year is that Republicans really did field a group of candidates that were more diverse than we have seen in, and I don't mean female and male, but although they did field more uh, females, but they also fielded more people of color um, and have uh, at least changed in that way. It was not, we haven't had a year of the woman since we had the year of the woman. I mean, it's been, I mean, we've, you know, kind of women's participation in federal politics um, has dropped. Final question, inquiring minds want to know, since you think Sarah Palin will not be on the ticket, mm -hmm. who will be on the ticket in 2012? Well, I didn't say she wouldn't be on the ticket. I said I didn't think she was gonna run. Um, if she runs, maybe she'll be on the ticket. That I don't know. I, I just don't think she is, seems to me like someone who's setting up for a presidential run. So I don't know who's gonna be on the ticket. I'll tell you two Republicans to watch. I don't, and, and they're just names you, one I just mentioned, Marco Rubio, They the Republican Party loves him. He's a Cuban American, he's got a great story, as we like to say, um, you know, he's the son of immigrants. Um, and just, a, and he's a, he's a quite talented uh, politician. And he is in, in quite conservative. And uh, even before he started, I remember he came into my office months ago. I said, hi, oh, Marco Rubio, and I'm running for Florida. I'm thinking, Charlie Crist, Charlie Crist, the face of the Republican Party. Why is this guy like wasting his time? And so now he's the next senator. So that shows you how much I know. But <laughs> nonetheless, he is a compelling politician, and they've already, in the Republican Party, you'll always have people saying, this is our Barack Obama. This is our guy who can move people. You should also, um, Chris Christie in New Jersey, who I promise you is the only politician I have ever seen who can stare down and shout down an audience member and get applauded for it. Um, <laughs> he's a very talented politician in some ways. He's one of those politicians that you think, this guy's really gonna go way up or he's gonna go down in flames. Either way, he's gonna be interesting to watch. So those are the two I would tell you to watch, not necessarily in the presidential cycle, but up and comers for sure on the Republican side. Thank you, Candy Crowley.